You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Some of you might have seen a, a recent <coughs> debate that went on between David Wood and John Loftus on Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? And I had to cough a little bit because if you saw it, it was hardly a debate. And that one point that was brought up is what in the debate was John Loftus did say, You have to look at Christianity like an outsider. To which David said he was an atheist growing up. His wife was an unbeliever, unbeliever, and his friend Abiyo Qureshi was a Muslim. So I think we've all done that. But if you've seen John Loftus, this is a regular technique of his. It's the outsider test for faith, as he calls it. And it's his main argument against Christianity. Well, one of his biggest critics here has written a book saying, Okay, I'm going to take your outsider test for faith, and I'm going to show Jesus passes that outsider test. And that's David Marshall. He's a Ph.D. He's in China right now. He, he lives there, from my understanding. He's written several books, such as The Truth Behind the New Atheism, Jesus and Religions of Man, and, of course, his most recent one, How Jesus Passes the Outsider Test. And so today we're going to be talking about him and his interaction with John Loftus and this book. So, um, Dr. Marshall, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Hi, Nick. How are you doing today? Doing good. I hope things are going well for you. Don't know. It's too early to tell yet. Yeah. You're it's in sh- six. It, it's what? It's only six in the morning, so I don't know how the day is yet. Yeah, you're in China, right? Yes, I'm in a city called Changsha, which is... Uh, a few miles away from uh, Mao Zedong's hometown. So, mm. uh, Chairman Mao is one of the main exports. Also, mm. uh, hot peppers that they put on. They like to put on food in this mm. Hunanese food. Well, we're recording the show today, starting at 6 p.m. So there is that interesting 12-hour difference. That you're just starting your day, and we're just ending ours here. So, um, if someone hasn't heard about you, who are you exactly? How did you get to be doing what you're doing? Well, first of all, if you haven't heard of me, that's uh, don't don't feel too bad. Not many people have. Um, I am. What am I? I'm teaching, uh, preparing kids who want to go to the U.S. to study in universities here in China. That's what I'm doing here. Um, I've been writing for. Let's see. My first book was uh, published uh, almost 20 years ago, and that was very much on the subject that I'm writing this book on too. It was is a book called True Son of Heaven: How Jesus Fulfills the Chinese Culture. So what I do is, if you've seen the old Reese's commercial peanut butter cup, where the commercial where they 
the guy with the chocolate and the girl with the with the uh, peanut butter, or the other way around, collided into each other, and one of them says, "Hey, you've got peanut butter in my chocolate." The other one says, "Hey, you've got chocolate in my peanut butter." Uh, I'm kind of like that with apologetics and missions. Mm-hmm. I think they really go together well, and uh, so most of my books have had to do with both apologetics and with missions, mm-hmm. including yeah. the first about China. Yeah. Now. Were you born here in America or in the East or what? I was born in Seattle, okay. um, which is which is a part of America. Some some people didn't realize that until the Super Bowl game last year. Um, <laughs> and uh, I came to, as a missionary to. Uh, I grew up reading C.S. Lewis, and C.S. Lewis was, a, was kind of a what you would call a cultural apologist. He he believed that. One of the ways that he became a Christian was by talking with our friend uh, J.R. Tolkien mm-hmm. uh, down through Addison's Walk in, in uh, Madeline College in, in, in uh, Oxford, underneath the chestnut trees. And uh, the, 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 his key sticking point was, well, what about other faiths? Is Christianity just true and everything else is just completely false? What about all these myths that I've loved all my life so far? And Tolkien said, well, you know, the gospel should be seen as the fulfillment of the deepest truths in, in, in other cultures, other, other belief systems. Mm-hmm. And that's really what brought Lewis to faith. And I grew up reading C.S. Lewis, so uh, uh, that's uh, in Alaska, actually. And uh, that's kind of where I got where I am now. Mm-hmm. And that led you to studying the world religions and saying, maybe there are hints of the gospel in these other religions. Yes. Uh, my next step was uh, G.K. Chesterton and mm-hmm. Don Richardson who was a missionary, who wrote about what he called redemptive analogies, a book mm-hmm. called Peace Child, another book called Eternity in Their Hearts. Mm-hmm. He told his own story about working among cannibals and headhunters in New Guinea and how these ferocious, horrible people who had this re- very corrupt culture where they betrayed their best friends or people who they pretended they were best friends actually had things in the culture. There were actually things in the culture that pointed people right to Jesus Christ. And... Uh, from there, he went on and he talked about how there's actually a concept of God around the world that is pretty close to the Christian concept. So that missionaries, when they go to other countries, they don't necessarily need to say, hey, we're bringing something completely new that you've never heard before, but there's truth within your culture that points right to, right to Jesus Christ. Even if, it, even if there are things within your culture that hold you back and that are corrupt, there may still be some things that point you to Christ. And when I came here to Asia... Uh, as a missionary uh, 30 years ago, um, I found out that was true. I remember walking up to the Temple of Heaven in Beijing, which is, you know, the number one symbol of China. This is a place that was built during the early Ming Dynasty, 600 years ago or so, mm-hmm. and it was built as a as a resurrection of traditional Chinese culture after. Uh, the Yuan dynasties after the Mongols, not the yeah the Mongols, had been running rough, roughshod. You know, Genghis Khan and and Kublai Khan had been ruling China for 90 years or so, and then finally the Ming dynasty, Zhu Yanzhang, said, "Hey, we want to get rid of these guys." They they chased them out of China and they said, "Let's resurrect old time Chinese religion." And what did they resurrect? They resurrected something that talked about a supreme God who created the planets and who was good and was above everybody else, everything else. Um, and then they built this fantastic, beautiful building 
which has all kinds of symbolism in it that points to no one else better than to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So I, I, visited, I visited this place in 1984, in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, in July of 1984, and I'd never heard of it before. I was completely bowled over by some of the symbolism I, re I recognized in it. And uh, that really caught my attention. And actually, while I was there, I won't explain all the symbolism right now, but it, it seemed as if, and I'm not a charismatic or anything, but it seemed as if God was saying something to me like, do you think I just came here to China with the Western missionaries? <laughs> no, I've, I've been here all along. Mm -hmm. I, I made China. Mm -hmm. So, talking about outsider tests, I mean, this is insider stuff. Now, when you were talking about that tribe, about that they betrayed one another, I was thinking, thinking, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, isn't this a tribe that when they were being told the gospel story and they got to the part about Judas, they started cheering because that was seemed to them as something good and honorable to do? Yeah, exactly, because uh, Judas was the hero because he'd stuck with Jesus for, for three years mm -hmm. and then pretended to be his friend, and in the very end he betrayed him with a kiss, and, and in that culture, betrayal like that was considered to be real, a real manhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, this real, real studly, manly, macho thing to do was to hang around with this guy for three years and then betray him with a kiss. Uh, they, thought, they thought, man, this guy's a real uh, yachty. He's, he's, he's really one of us, and he's the best of us. He's a real hero. Mm -hmm. We're going to begin to some of these things now. First of all, I'd like to say about this book, Honestly, when I was reading this book, after a while I was saying, this could be the mere Christianity of our times. Folks, it is that good. It's filled with good, solid information, and there is a whole lot of humor in it. I found myself laughing at a number of places, because Dr. Marshall's writing is just so hysterical like his critique of Hector Avalos, that, that, that was that was golden. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Hector and I, uh, we have a we have a little uh, thing going. <laughs> now I don't know if he, I don't know if he hates me or he, he he likes me. I really don't know. Now, when it comes to uh, John Loftus, a lot of people may not have heard of him. Who exactly is John Loftus? Well, you don't really need to hear of John Loftus that much. He's not important. Um, <laughs> John Loftus is an atheist in, in uh, Indiana. Um, there's a cowboy hat, and he has he does, likes to put together. He's got a blog called uh, what is it called? Deconstructing Christianity. Debunking Christianity. Debunking. I always get that wrong. Yeah. Um, where he every day he posts two or three articles attacking Christianity from a variety of angles. Sometimes he has his friends post articles. Uh, he also puts together books with a group of uh, atheists who are his friends and uh, they sometimes Rick, uh, Richard Carrier, another atheist you don't really need to hear of if you don't want to. Who you've debated and, before. Yeah, I've debated him and, and um, Hector Avalos contributes, Robert Price and, and a bunch of other atheists. Some of them are pretty well known and uh, Richard Dawkins wrote a you know a blurb for the last one. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're actually in some ways um, I think they're more interesting than a lot of other New Atheist books because what one thing that Loftus does that is right is he he does know something about evangelical Christianity, which is his usual target, um, and uh, he has read a lot. And his friends have tend to read, read more than some of the other New Atheists that, that are out there. I mean, I've read books by you know some famous Grayling, A.C. Grayling, and different famous philosophers who attack Christianity. 
and they don't really know what they're talking about at all. Right. Peter Bukowski, very famously, you know, writes a whole book premised on the idea that we're just in love with this idea of blind faith. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know what he's talking about either. No. So the one, the one good thing about Loftus, number one, his books are better than his blog. His blogs are just a series of, you know, uh, one-sided and and empty attacks. But his books tend to have a little bit more meat to them, um, and they they bring together a lot of different skeptics. Now he goes on about this thing called the outsider test for faith. Now many of us have heard this idea that, well, you know, if you were born in India, you'd be a Hindu, and if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you'd be a Muslim. But the outsider test for faith is a little bit deeper than that, isn't it? Um, that's a part of it, and it's it's an old argument. I mean, it, it goes back really to the Epicureans, uh, even before the time of Christ. Um, it's basically the idea that uh, you know, from and Loftus is a person who's popularized it in, in recently, and a lot of skeptics pick him up on that. He's probably most famous for his uh, use of the outsider test for faith, and he named it the outsider test for faith. Um, it's basically the insight that uh, you know. Christianity, or we, we, if we're raised in a particular religion, we should step outside of our own culture because we're too influenced by our culture, and we should try to look at things a little bit more objectively. Um, and if our faith passes a more objective uh, examination from outside of, in China, they they have an expression called "zhojing uh, guantian," uh, which means uh, sitting in a well and looking at the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're all like that to a certain extent because we've been influenced by our culture mm-hmm. and maybe the reason that we're Christians is just because our father and mother were Christians and we got it from our parents and we got it from our ancestors right. and because our culture predisposes us to believe in a certain way. Mm-hmm. So let's try to be a little more objective and step outside of our culture and, and examine it uh, from an outside perspective. And if it passes, it passes. If it fails, and Loftus thinks it fails, uh, then we're, we should try something else. And naturally, no Christian should really have too much of a problem with this as it is. And when I'm talking to people who are outside the Christian faith, I always say, hey, if you want to investigate these claims, sure. Read the best scholars that you can on both sides of the argument and then come to a conclusion. And I have no problem with people doing that because I'm convinced if Christianity is true, it's going to pass any test you can throw at it. Yeah, any, any honest test, yes. Yeah. Now, let's get into the book then, because at the start, you kind of do what I refer to as an Alvin Plantinga move, where if someone writes a critique of Christianity, Plantinga will look at their argument and then he'll dissect the weak points, try and make them even stronger to make the argument the best that it can be, and then he'll answer that argument. And you actually say, I'm going to take Lawson's outside test for faith, I'm going to make it an even stronger test, right? Yes, um, and of course that really needs to be done because, first of all, John doesn't know very much about uh, the history or sociology of religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, he doesn't really, he, he speaks about an outsider test, but he's never been outside of Western civilization. And of course, mm-hmm. thirdly, the biggest weakness of the way Loftus formulates the question is that he, and this is very common among skeptics, he excludes his own belief system from right. analysis. Mm-hmm. That, that belief system being secular humanism. Um, if we, def- and this is probably the main reason why people like to define the word religion. You know, there's different ways of defining the word religion. Peter Berger said this 
you know, there's, there's two basic ways of defining the word religion, according to its content or according to its function. And uh, atheists tend these days to define religion according to its content as belief in the supernatural or belief in God or something like that. Mm -hmm. One of the main reasons you do that is because they want to exclude their own religion from con consideration, which is usually secular humanism of some form. Mm -hmm. uh, so Loftus does the same thing. His purpose, one of his purposes, he, he, he automatically excludes his own position as being more objective, so therefore it doesn't need to be analyzed, it doesn't need to be compared, it doesn't need to be looked at from an outsider perspective. But in fact, of course, uh, the secular humanism grew up in a particular culture at a particular time, influenced by particular streams of culture, uh, and is also subjective. It also needs to be looked at from the outside, an outsider perspective. And therefore, one of the things that needs to be done before we analyze any religion is to level the play playing field a little bit. Yeah, the way of my thinking is that really the concept of something secular is really quite recent in human history because pretty much in the past everything was tied into religion somehow. Yeah, uh, Paul Kurtz, who's kind of one of the founders of modern secular humanism, he, he said that secular, secular humanism basically has four assumptions. The first one is that uh, there is no God. Secondly, that uh, this life is it. You know, we die and then we're done for. The third assumption is that uh, nevertheless we should care about ourselves, and fourthly, nevertheless we should care about other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so that's the basic uh, framework of, of uh, secular humanism. Mm -hmm. Now let's look at how you go through the outsider test for faith here and show how Jesus passed it. The first point I think you wanted to establish is that at the very start of Christianity, everyone was an outsider. Yeah, yeah. Um, Christianity began with, uh, with with one person, and uh, there's nothing in the ab in the abstract. There's no particular reason why it should have uh, conquered the world. Uh, so why did Christianity become the world's largest religion, if you want to put it that way? Uh, which I don't like to put it that way, but why did it become the the, the leading uh, provider of belief or, or belief content in in the world? It, it, maybe there's some reasons for that. Um, and maybe those reasons have to do with, with uh, logic and reason as well, and evidence as well as, and, and, and what we're searching for, truths that human beings are naturally searching for, as well as just some fortuitous accident or something like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you've interviewed on your blog before J.P. Holding, who wrote about the impossible faith, and this first step reminds me of that impossible faith, that Christianity should have really died out from the very get-go because it was such a religion that if you were writing a book in the first century and giving an example of how not to make a religion, Christianity would be the prime example. Well, uh, a common way to uh, do this sort of religious entrepreneurship thing is to gather a bunch of wives together and then uh, you know, get out your sword or scimitar and start mm -hmm. conquering tell your confederates that you're going to conquer the, the uh, tribes around you and, and everybody's going to get the booty in both senses uh, along the way. You can gather pretty good, uh, gather, get together a pretty good religion that way. Um, Jesus, of course, set the example, a very different kind of example, not of 
gathering worldly goods or anything like that. And the, the real problem with Christianity in the early days was it was a Jewish religion. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish people, the Jewish religion was discriminated against in the ancient Roman Empire. It wasn't thought of as the thing to do to become a Jew. And in fact, there were so many barriers against people becoming Jews as converts that even though there was a, a great interest in a supreme God who could replace this, uh, this Gold, rude Goldbergian kind of uh, polytheism that had grown mm -hmm. up in, in the Greek world. The Greek, the Greek philosophers were very interested in the idea of God, but they couldn't become Jews because uh, uh, there were too many barriers between Judaism and, and the Greek culture. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's really quite amazing in the abstract that a Jewish uh, sect would become very, very popular throughout the Roman Empire. We can also consider that the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come and conquer Rome and deliver them. And yet the Messiah that ends up coming is one that to all intents and purposes looks like he was conquered by Rome instead. And who wants to go out there and follow a crucified king anyway? Yeah, uh, this has been a this has been troubling for Jews for 2,000 years now. Is, wasn't the Messiah supposed to be a ruler uh, in, like David, like King David? And uh, Jesus obviously came in a very different way, and his idea of rulership was, was quite different from what the Jews were expecting. It was a problem for those his own disciples, uh, and it remains a problem for, for many Jews today. Um, but this is only one example of a kind of cultural barriers that... Christianity faced and that it had to conquer in order to become what it is today, which is the world's largest faith system. Um, because every culture, basically people are configured in such a way that they don't want to throw away their traditions in order to embrace new ideas that come from another culture, that come from another civilization. Uh, people like to preserve their, their, their religious capital, as the sociologist uh, Rodney Stark puts it. Um, so it's kind of naive of someone like John Loftus or people like Richard Dawkins and many, by the way I should say, John Loftus made this popular, but this outsider test of faith argument is ubiquitous among skeptics today. It's rather naive to assume that uh, whatever is, has the best truth, has the best uh, evidence for it, everybody's going to automatically just be attracted to that and accept that because it has the strongest evidence. In fact, um, evangelism, cross-cultural evangelism, missions is a very slow and difficult process at the best of times. Mm -hmm. it's, there are innumerable sociological and psychological barriers to people accepting belief systems that don't originate in their own old-time religion, in their own traditions. Mm -hmm. People are prejudiced against outside beliefs. I think Ravi Zacharias was talking about it. It might have been Judson who went to Burma and he was a missionary for nine years before he got his first convert. Yes. And the and the uh Burmese are a very good example of this mm -hmm. because like a lot of other Asian peoples, very literate especially very literate peoples mm -hmm. who have thousands of years of civilization um and have developed religions, um it's very difficult to get past that 1% barrier mm -hmm. for an outside belief system. And it practically never happens, in fact. Mm. One of the things that I've heard about Eastern peoples as well, 
that can make it difficult to evangelize them is that over here in America and the West, we'll say, okay, well, you say Christianity is true. Where's the evidence? Do you have anything scientific? Do you have anything historical? Things of that sort. But when you go over East, one thing you might say is, I could become a Christian, but that would dishonor my family and my ancestors. And that's a totally different ballgame. Is that really something common over there? Well, that's what my wife told me before she became a Christian, before we were married. Mm. She's Japanese. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, the thing is, um, and this is a rational barrier, too. Mm. I mean, if something works, people are not ready to abandon it quickly. Mm -hmm. And the basic insight here, the basic, the reason why some religions don't catch on in other cultures is basically that people perceive, people are social animals. Mm -hmm. People, if, they, if as a group, as a collective, people perceive that this religion is an enemy of their culture, then they are very, very reluctant to accept it. And almost nobody will. Mm -hmm. No matter how much you pray, no matter how, no matter how much you preach, God seems to have built this into human, the human psyche. If people as a whole, if their family, their friends, perceive Christianity as being an enemy to their culture, almost no one is going to convert. And they're not even going to consider the arguments for the Christian faith. If, however, they perceive Christianity as a friend or even the fulfillment of their culture, then they are very much more likely at least to listen to the essence of the gospel. Mm -hmm. Now, you still, you still have to think through the gospel itself. And this is exactly what Paul did when he came to Athens. Um, and this is, a, this is why, if you look in, in the New Testament and you look at, you know, where do we have a model for evangelism to other peoples and other cultures? The longest sermon preached to uh, Gentiles is in the book of Acts, in Acts 17. Mm -hmm. and, and you look at how Paul preached to the Athenians. First of all, you think, wow, man, talk about outside of tests. Right. These guys were intellectuals. Mm-hmm. Epicureans, the Stoics, is the two groups that are named in, in Acts 17. That the elite of the elite. The elite of the elite. And the Stoics had been going for hundreds of years already. They, uh, they were you know, founded not long after the time of Plato and Aristotle, and they really liked Socrates. You know, they thought Socrates was, uh, he, Socrates was their New Testament. Right. Their Old Testament, you know, um, every time somebody like Epictetus quotes, you know, he says, this is how you should live. He says, this is how Socrates did it. This is what Socrates said. This is how Socrates walked his dog, you know? Yeah. That's how they thought. And the Stoics were, however, looking for a supreme God, because they were dissatisfied with the Old Testament, who was Homer for them. Mm -hmm. They were dissatisfied with the Old Testament, Homer, uh, and they wanted a more rational creator God who could you know, bring all this together and made a lot more sense than, you know, Zeus with his thunderbolt chasing, chasing, you know, dove, uh, swans or whatever he was, whatever lady he was going after. Mm -hmm. um, so what did Paul do? Paul came to this, you know, this fulcrum of, of this is the center of Greek civilization, of, of the Greco-Roman world, really. Um, and he went to the very heart of that, which was a place called Mars Hill. Mars Hill had been established hundreds of years before as uh, really the, 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 the place of the Supreme Court of Athens and therefore of the Greek world. Um, and this is really interesting because according to Greek legend, one of the people who was tried on Mars Hill was the, uh, the son of Agamemnon. 
Agamemnon was the leader of the Greek forces in the Trojan War. And before he went off to war to fight the Trojans, he sacrificed, he sacrificed his daughter uh, to ensure success. Mm. Now, his wife was not very happy about that. Mm -hmm. uh, Understandable. Understandable. And when he got back from the Trojan War, having beaten the Trojans with Trojan horse, um, there was a bit of a, a bit of a problem in the family, and he ended up getting killed. And uh, there, long, you know, soap opera later, uh, we have one person surviving, and that is um, Agamemnon's son, who had killed—I don't remember who he killed. I think he killed his mother. The sister also died. Well, of course, the sister died. Yeah, I, I think I didn't read his mother was killed because it was kind of like an honor challenge. You have to cure your mother to honor your your father. Yeah, it's it's in the it's in the poet in the uh, playwright Euripides. Right. He tells the story, and uh, at the end, the son, who is the only surviving member of the family, is put on trial, and the presiding judge is the goddess Athena, hmm. and the defense lawyer is the god Apollo, and the jury is, is I think believe is the men of of, uh, of Athens, the uh, presiding the usual upper class folks. And one of the things that Apollo says in defense of the sun is, you know, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be too hasty in putting this fellow to death because he's, he's just a mortal. A mortal, you know, his blood flows into the ground and disappears. There is no resurrection. Mm -hmm. he, actually, he actually said that. There is no resurrection. Right. But notice what Paul does when he comes to this the Supreme Court of Athens and the Greek world. Here he's, you know, this is this is Babe Ruth in the seventh game of the World Series. This is the this is the place. This is the time. Here is Paul the Apostle is speaking to the whole the whole Greek world symbolically when he arrives in the city of Athens. Mm -hmm. He begins to talk with some of the people in the market, and they, especially with Epicureans and Stoics. These are the leading school of Greek philosophers, especially the Stoics in those days. And they say, you know. Uh, Paul, we don't really follow you very well. You, you know, you speak kind of a down-home uh, Antioch kind of accent. We don't follow your Greek very well. What is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. These are the two questions that people bring when people talk about Christianity and other cultures. Mm -hmm. First of all, there's a language barrier. The barrier of, you know, this guy's a foreigner. We don't really understand them very well. Same problem that I have in China today still a little bit. Mm -hmm. The second barrier is a barrier of culture and he's saying okay we are the great Athenians we are the people we are the people who look down on barbarians because we know that our culture is where everything started this is where science started this is where philosophy started this is where the great playwrights wrote yeah. this is where the tribute came from other cities in, in, in the Greek world because we were the ones who had the best ships and we're the best we, we, we defeated the Persian army right, out, right over there in the water. That's where we, we, we won the Battle of Salamis hundreds of years before. This is the place where everything happens. And Paul comes to this place. First of all, he's got an accent, maybe, apparently. And secondly, he's advocating foreign gods. Now, what is that? Foreign god. Okay, Greek, Athens has some foreign gods, but why do they need another one? And secondly, why should they care, really, about these foreign gods when they are city? The greatest city in the world, the most splendid cultural relic of, of, of the ancient world. Named for Athena herself. Named for Athena herself. And so what does Paul do? He says, 
he, he's invited to Mars Hill to explain this foreign god that he brings. And what did he do? <laughs> he begins with Greek philosophy. He says, as some of your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. We also are his offspring. So he's quoting from Greek philosophies and, uh, philosophers, including Aratus, uh, who is a Stoic. And he says, you know, um, I, as I was wandering around your town, I noticed this altar to the unknown god. Who is this unknown god? I'm going to tell you about that unknown God that you worship without knowing who he is. And then he quotes from the Greek philosopher showing that even though they didn't know God, they knew there was a supreme God. They began to, began to grapple with this fact that there's a unifying reality behind all these, you know, all these uh, gods and goddesses on, on, on Mount Olympus. Mm -hmm. So he's speaking to them through their own culture and he's showing them that it points them to Christ. <laughs> and therefore, they no longer say, what is this babbler talking about? He seems to be advocating God, uh, foreign gods. They're actually listening to him now. And then he comes to his point, and he says, um, and by the way, this God who made heaven and earth and who is not created by any hands and is not worshipped merely in temples, this God proved, he sent, he sent someone, he sent his son, and he proved that he was truly his son by raising him from the dead. So first of all, Paul quotes from the Greek philosophers, and he quotes Greek philosophy. That gets him in the door. That shows that he's not just an outside foreigner. But then he says he, he challenges that culture, and he says, but Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And what is he doing there? He's directly challenging the founding myth of the Arapagus, of Mars Hill. He's saying, Apollo said that after immortals dies, his blood is going to flow, flow into the ground and be gone. But, you know, there's a God greater than Apollo. Mm. Wow. And this is, I think, should also tell us that we're going to be good missionaries. And, yeah, we do need to have the apologetics because idiots don't get invited to speak on Mars here. And Paul certainly demonstrated that he knew not only what he believed, he knew what his own opposition believed as well. Well, unfortunately, idiots do get invited to speak on uh, Fox News sometimes. <laughs> now, uh, but we could say, though, that... Sorry, public, public defense today is, is not, not always the best. But we could say, though, that Christianity might have spread some by that, but obviously it spread by the sword some, too. I mean, this is what John Loftus said on his debate on Unbelievable View that Christianity was a very warlike religion. I mean, even Dinesh D'Souza said that when the Christian missionaries came in, they, they came with a sword. So, I mean, doesn't this have something to do with why Christianity caught on so much it was so violent? Well, this is the argument that Richard, uh, Richard Carrier also makes, and mm -hmm. it's a very common reply, saying, yeah, Christianity succeeded because it was violent. Um, Dinesh D'Souza was born in Goa, in uh, western India, south of Bombay. Mm -hmm. And the Goan Inquisition was actually quite violent, and uh, they did torture people into the faith. Um, so it's, not, it's true that in some cases that actually did happen. But right. it's, uh, Of course, what I did when I was debating Kerr online was uh, when he made this claim in Sense and Sensibility Without God, or what, Sense and Goodness Without God, right? Sense and Goodness. Without God. He made the claim that Christianity was spread by the sword. So what I did was I, I checked. Uh, I know that's kind of cheating, but that's what I did. 
uh, I went through the historical uh, periods in which Christianity spread. I think there were 14 of them altogether in which Christianity spread very successfully. Um, and of those, there were two in which Christianity spread by the sword to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. One of them was medieval Europe, and that really mostly was not by the sword. It was mostly because people had found reason to believe. Uh, and then the second period was uh, was uh, South America and Central America when the Spanish arrived. And there you kind of had kind of a Christ paganism which did actually succeed uh, in uh, converting to some extent uh, a lot of people through violence and through force. Mm -hmm. However, in 12 of those periods, 12 or 14 periods, it simply was not true and Christianity did not spread by force but rather because people found reason to believe it was true. Uh, so, it's, so it's historically false. Um, in fact, Rodney Stark would say that what spreads when you use violence is usually not a very pure faith, but uh, it's something that's forced from the top down. Usually not many people actually believe it when that happens. If anybody is interested, we did interview Matthew Flanagan just last week on a book he co-wrote with Paul Copan called Did God Really Command Genocide? And one of the times we talked about at the end was the Crusades. So if you want some more information about that, that's something you can listen to, and that's another good book to read on topic. But, geez, your, your friend or foe, whichever one it is, Hector Avalos, has said that Christianity had to be a violent faith. I mean, he's written fighting words. And one key example he uses is Look at Luke 14. Jesus says you are to hate your mother and father. <laughs> Good Lord. Meanwhile, yeah, on planet Earth. <laughs> yeah, meanwhile, on planet Earth, there are 700, ver 700 verses in the, in the Bible that talk about love. And there are 14 of them in, in the New Testament, I think, that use the word hate. So I looked through all 14 that have to do with the word hate. And that was the only one that could even possibly, by ignoring the context and by ignoring what it actually says, could possibly be twisted in the form of, you know, Jesus commands hate. Because actually, uh, Hector, Hector Avalos's new book is, is uh, apparently uh, the, called The Bad Jesus. I haven't read it yet, but apparently he's doing this in, on a larger scale now. He's claiming that Jesus was actually, you know, this badass kind of, kind of person who... Uh, taught us how to hate others. Uh, no, if you look at the, the context of that, that quote, Jesus is not telling anybody to hate anybody. Uh, and, and that's obvious. The, the thing, the difference is, you know, in the first century, Jesus was speaking to common peasants in Galilee, and they picked up on the fact that he was being a little bit facetious and that he wasn't being literal. But our Harvard-trained PhDs in modern America don't always pick up on these subtle nuances, apparently. Right. They don't realize that ancient Jews spoke in hyperbole a lot of times and use extreme examples. And the whole idea is that Jesus is saying the kingdom must be put above everything else, that everything else is hated by comparison. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, hate your own life, Jesus also says. He yeah. doesn't mean he wants all his disciples to go out and kill themselves. That right. wasn't... You know, that wasn't the next thing to do. It, it, it's really sad that Hector Avalos isn't the only one who does this, but so many internet atheists and others like Dan Barker go out and trot this verse out 
as they're saying, see, this is the, the bad family ethics that Jesus is teaching. And I can't but think, wonder, do you even know how to study the Bible? Yeah, I, I mean, I've, I've uh, I deconstructed some of Avalos's uh, books on, on my on my blog, and, and uh, his exegesis is is atrocious, to put it mildly. And I do like it. It's so hysterical when you get done dealing with Hector Avalos and reception. You say he could probably be best by answer by giving another verse from Luke. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that that's uh, that's a laugh in itself. Um, let's uh, move on. One of the other things you talk about in the book is that Jesus fulfills prophecy, or Christianity fulfills prophecy. And now some people are saying, "Oh, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Daniel 2, Daniel 9." You don't have any of those in mind, really, do you? Um, maybe I should set this up a little bit by explaining, giving a, a basic gist of my arguments. Um, sure. Because you're, you're right now you're talking about number two, and, and, and there's really four main arguments in my, in my book, along with the story. Um, first argument is that Christianity fulfill, uh, passes the outsider test by the test of history, by the fact that the gospel has captured more minds, um, the old, the wise, and the skillful, as Aristotle put it, uh, in, in more cultures and more antagonistic uh, mm-hmm. philosophies and ideas, people have been won to Christ through thinking in different directions from different perspectives uh, than any other faith, including, of course, secular humanism, Buddhism, uh, Marxism, and any other religion. Uh, second, a second argument is the one you're talking about right now, and that is the idea that Christianity is... Uh, the gospel was forecast... Uh, I mean... Going back to Abraham, uh, God told Abraham that I will bless when he when they went to maybe I should set the scene a little bit here. Abraham takes his son on a uh, father-son camping trip to a mountain called Moriah, where God has actually told his told Abraham that you need to sacrifice your son, your only son, um, on the top, on the mountain. So he. They hike up the mountain. It may not actually be Moriah, because it's actually says in the region of Moriah. Some people think it might even be a, a, a hill later called Golgotha. Uh, anyway, they go up to the top of the mountain, and uh, the son is carrying the uh, the wood, and they set the wood down on the ground. They about they uh, Abraham ties his son to the to the altar and is about to sacrifice him when an angel says, "Stop! Don't do it. Now I know that you put me first. And because of this, I am going to bless you, and I am going to bless your family. I'm going to bless your tribe. Now, up to that point, we have a typical, you know, covenant between the God, mm-hmm. put your mark on X, and the mortal being, put your mark on B, on, on down down below here. You have a typical covenant, a contract between the God and the mortal. And it makes perfect sense from a biological point of view, from an evolutionary point of view. You say, yeah, I do something for God, and then God is going to reward me, and he's not only going to reward me, he's going to re- reward my, my genes. He's going to reward my family, my DNA. Mm-hmm. Everybody descended from me. My selfish genes. <laughs> it's my selfish genes, yeah, as, as Richard Dawkins put it. But then... <laughs> Then God says something really surprising. Not only 
am I going to bless you and bless your family and bless your descendants and your nation? I'm going to bless all the families of the world through you. He repeats it. And this is an astounding promise to somebody, you know, we don't look at it anachronistically and say, yeah, Abraham, of course, he's the founder of Christianity and Islam. What else is more natural in the, in the Jewish nation? No, we're talking about some Bedouin wandering around the sagebrush mm-hmm. in the tumbles of uh, the Levant, you know, th- thousands of years ago with a few sheep and a few, a few uh, camels. Uh, and, and here's the promise to this obscure person that through him every nation in the world is going to be blessed. That's astounding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is the very prophecy that you're getting at at the start. It's nothing specific about Jesus saying every nation of the world will be blessed, but that's why the claim right there. Has every nation of the world been blessed by Christianity? Yeah. Yeah, and that, that is the question. And um, even if you begin with before Christianity, even if you say the seed of Abraham is the Jewish people, uh, I would say that, yes, every nation has been blessed by the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Even if you look at a roll call of Nobel, Nobel Prize winners, something like 30% of Nobel Prize winners in, in different fields, in mm-hmm. chemistry, physics, are, uh, are Jewish. Mm-hmm. So I'd say, yes, God has blessed the world through Abraham's seed, uh, empirically, it's not a religious question or something that we believe on so-called blind faith. It's something we know because we can look at the the effect of the Jewish people on the world that they have, aside from scoundrels like Karl Marx uh, and and people a little screwy people like uh, Sigmund Freud. Um, overall, the Jewish people have brought immeasurable benefits and blessings to the whole human race in a variety of ways, empirically. When uh, yeah. yeah. One way I'm thinking is that uh, Thomas Cahill wrote a book several years ago, The Gifts of the Jews, which I'm sure you've probably read it. And one way mm-hmm. the Jews did it is the rest of the world really thought of reality in cyclical terms, that things kept repeating over and over. For the Jews, there was a past, you came from somewhere, and there was a future, you were going somewhere. And this is a revolutionary concept, and the Jews gave it to us. Well, it was revolutionary, but I wouldn't say that they were unique in that. There were other peoples who had a, a, a linear uh, view of history. So I would say Cahill was wrong about that. But there was a lot of good, good insights in that book otherwise. Um, one thing, although in, compared to the, Greek, the Greco-Roman world and probably the Chinese world, yeah, that was, that was secular. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that, um, that uh, Rodney, I'm sorry, Donald Treadgold, who was a professor of mine at the University of Washington, he was the head of the history department there. He wrote a book called Freedom of History, and he pointed out, and this is something that is very uh, contradictory to a lot of what a lot of people think about about ancient about the Old Testament. He said that in the ancient Middle East, the Jewish people were the only people who had the, the institutions who lacked the institutions of of, uh, of uh, tyranny. They were the only people who had the basic institutions in their culture of a, of a free people, mm-hmm. and of course that, that comes from the prophets. It comes from you know when when Nathan the prophet is is rebuking uh, Saul and he's saying no when David. he's rebuking David David and he says you know you are the man. He's he's telling the king, the guy who can have his head knocked off. He's telling the king, God is angry at you because you have 
abuse your power to oppress an ordinary, a weak, common citizen. And that's a that's a revolutionary moment in history. Mm-hmm. And we could also add in that one of the more famous things we have from the Jews, which no doubt came through Christianity also, is our moral categories. Even here in the West, in America, our morality is highly shaped by what's found in the Judeo-Christian ethic. Yeah, of course, Jesus was the, the greatest and last of the prophets. Uh-huh. Excuse me, let me get some water. <coughs> And like to remind everyone while he's doing that, that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. I am Nick Peters. We are in the middle of an interview with David Marshall. We're talking about his book, How Jesus Passes the Outsider Test for Faith. And it's a critique of John Loftus's Outsider Test for Faith. At this point, we're talking about how the Jews were a blessing to the world. And we're talking about how the Judeo-Christian ethic was came largely through Jesus and how that shaped so much of even our modern civilization today. So, uh, you were saying? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, I would say that not only has the gospel been a blessing to the world, I, I would start with the Jews and say, yes, uh, the Jewish people were also were the beginning of God's answer, have been the beginning of God's answer to this promise. And this mm-hmm. promise is empirically provable. And this is the second way in which the gospel passes the outsider, or is actually the third. Uh, the third way in which the gospel out- passes the outsider test is by blessing the whole world, as uh, God promised to Abraham. And really, you could go to many, many other passages, all of which um, some of the gospel, some critics of the gospel of Christianity tend to overlook. Um, Christianity is not just a religion, I mean, the Old Testament is not just a religion for the Jews, which is really kind of surprising. You would expect it to right. be a religion for the Jews. But actually, the whole Old Testament, all through the, uh, the books of history uh, and the, the poetry and the writings, the, uh, the Psalms and the Proverbs and the, and the prophets, again and again, we have this emphasis on the gospel going to all the world, being created for not just for the Jews, but being for, for the whole world. So, and the surprising thing, of course, is the Jews didn't do that. They they sat on their treasure like smog in his in his uh, in uh, what's the name it, of the mountain in Mount Doom. Yeah, and uh, didn't go anywhere and preach the gospel, preach uh, the truth, tell people about uh, God, mm-hmm. God's revelation to them. So, even though you have this paradox, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, are all about blessing the whole world from a certain point of view. Mm-hmm. Jews didn't do that until Jesus arrived on the scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, something else about the fulfillment of prophecies we should talk about is you don't only talk about biblical prophecies. You talk about prophecies outside the Bible. Now, some people might say, oh, we're getting this charismatic stuff, aren't we? But no, you're talking about prophecies in other religions, aren't you? Yeah, um, and, and let me go to a, a quote by a uh, student of world religions, a professor of world religions named James Thrower, which, which I really think is kind of key. Because one of the challenges that we have, aside from finding a spoon to stir my coffee with, one of the challenges that we have as Christians is looking for a model, or really everybody has this challenge. How do we understand the world of religions? 
This is not something that John Loftus brought up. And it really is something that, it's one of the challenges. How do we understand Buddhism? How do we understand Hinduism? How do we understand Islam, the Chinese traditions, and the folk religions of Guinea and South America and whatnot? This is really my area of academic specialization. The basic, the usual ways of understanding world religions, and this is, it's kind of a shame, kind of a scandal almost, that this is what people have come up with, what very learned and intelligent scholars have come up with. One of them is what is called exclusivism. The idea of exclusivism is my way or the highway. What I say, what my religion says is all true, and what everybody else's religion says is completely false. The second one is pluralism, which says, you know, there's one mountain, and there's many paths up the mountain, and, you know, they all kind of meet at the top, and they join hands, and they dance around a circle, and sing kumbaya. That, those are the two extremes. And then in between, there's supposed to be something called inclusivism. These are the usual models of religion that people have been talking about for many decades now. And, you know, you hear the terms quite a bit. But the problem with both those, neither one of those is really a realistic approach to world religions. First of all, exclusivism, truth doesn't exclude truth. And how would it be possible that any great tradition would be totally false? That's just not credible. And pluralism excludes itself. Because if you're a pluralist, you have to say that my interpretation of reality is true, pluralism, but everybody else, and almost nobody's a pluralist, they're all wrong because they miss this central truth. So pluralism excludes itself, excludes other belief systems that disagree with it, and therefore it contradicts itself, and therefore pluralism doesn't get off the ground either. Even worse than exclusivism, because it turns out to be a form of exclusivism. Exclusivism is true in one sense. In that sense, A, if A excludes B, then, you know, reality is exclusive in the sense that there is one reality and everything that contradicts reality is false. And, of course, Christians are exclusivists in that sense. But we don't need, following the example of Paul on Mars Hill, we don't need to be exclusivist in a deeper sense in saying there's nothing true at all about other religions. And here we're, you know, go back to C.S. Lewis again, too. You know, as a Christian, we should be able to find a way, a model of religions that says, yes, Muhammad was a conniving, bloody, tyrannical guy in the desert waving his scimitar and murdering people, innocent people. And he, you know, yes, he did marry this girl when she was only nine years old, and yes, he was a false prophet. We can say that, but we can also say, you know, yes, Islam is true when it says there's one God and there's one supreme being, and that he's And yes, Islam is true when it says that Jesus is the Messiah and the breath of God in the Quran itself says. And there are belief systems that are deeper and richer than the Quran outside of Christianity. As Christians, we need to find a way of embracing that truth and even showing that it's truer than people expected it to be. Here's the really tricky and interesting way. Just the way when Paul came to Athens, and he came to Athens and he said, you know, you have this altar over here to an unknown God, 
you're really onto something there, but you don't even know what it is. And I'll tell you about it because it's richer and deeper than what you know. And you know, your, your great philosophers are beginning to talk about this, this uh, God in, him we live in, in, in whom we live and breathe and have our being. They're onto something there. They don't know about it, and I'm going to tell you more about it, because there's something really profound and important in what your own philosophers are saying right now. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is, so anyway, back to James Thrower. This is what he says. This does not necessarily mean that someone looking for a naturalistic theory of religion has to choose between a number of competing theories. The implication is rather that any naturalistic theory which stands a chance of winning support today will need to find a way of combining the insights of Marx, Freud, Nietzsche, Durkheim, Weber, and a host of others besides, just as any theory which seeks to substantiate the claims of religion to be a valid response to transcendent reality will have to combine insights from a number of differing religious traditions. Whether a naturalistic or a religious theory can best combine the insights of both of these two main ways of explaining religion remains an open question. Mm -hmm. Now what I argue in this book is that the gospel meets this challenge better than anything else. Mm -hmm. That the gospel in fact is the best way of combining insights from different religious traditions and also excluding falsehoods and errors from different religious traditions and also from different naturalistic traditions, that all of the truth that is true in other cultures and other times, well, I can't say all, of course, because it's a, the book is only 200 pages long, mm -hmm. but by implication, the greatest truths, the most important truths in non-Christian traditions uh, are met and joined and combined into one coherent whole in the pages of the New Testament and in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you were talking about this whole thing also, I was thinking about how I'm, a, from a philosophical perspective, I'm a Thomist. And we have a whole tradition that's called the Aristotelian Thomist tradition. And that the Jesuits used to say, when we go back to Paul, talking about Paul confronting the Greek philosophers, they used to say, the Greek philosophers are gifts to the church. And what Aquinas did was he took Aristotle and said, you know, yeah, he, he's got some things wrong, but there is a lot of good stuff here. Let's tweak it, let's work with it, and let's see what we can do. And he ended up presenting one of the, the greatest defenses of Christianity that there has ever been. It's still around to this day. Yeah, and of course, one of the things that, that we don't like in, in, in uh, Aristotle and that Christianity finally got rid of, beginning already in the Middle Ages, was Aristotle's idea that, you know, slaves are less of less value than real human beings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and Aristotle, um, I'm not, uh, I've read some of Aristotle, but not all of it, and, and uh, Plato, of course, and, and Socrates. Um, there was a, one, of the great, great, one of the great church fathers, <coughs> one of the founders of the Alexandrian school was Clement of Alexandria, and he also went back to one of the great Greek playwrights, I think it was Euripides again. <coughs> Excuse me. I had a cold a couple of weeks ago, and there's still a few lingering uh, effects. Mm -hmm. um, he went back to Clement of Alexandria. Clement of Alexandria went back to another story, another Greek story, about um, the king of Thebes. And uh, the king of Thebes, according to the playwright, 
was kind of jealous of the god Dionysius because the god Dionysius was a newcomer just like Christianity would be to Greek culture and it seemed like the women of Thebes were going up the mountains and doing who knows what, having orgies or what were they doing? He didn't really know what they were doing, getting, getting really wild and crazy up in the mountains. And so he passed the law, which didn't take very much when you're the king, uh, saying that nobody could worship Dionysius anymore. Now, this upset Dionysius. And so what he did was he caused the women of Thebes to go crazy uh, and they tore the king named Pentheus from limb to limb, literally. Mm-hmm. They tore him to pieces. And then, actually, it's, it's kind of a gory story if you, you go back and look at the original. Yeah. Um, it's actually his mother who is right. carrying his head. Yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty gross. Um, so what does Alexander, what does Clement say? He says, this is what the schools of Greek philosophy have done to the truth. Each of them has part of the truth. It has a valuable part of the truth, but it's been torn asunder. And what the gospel of Jesus Christ does, it brings those pieces back together again. And not only brings them back together again, but resurrects them in the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the fullness of which each of these different schools and, and tribes and, 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 and uh, philosophies is a part. Mm. And I think that that should be our approach to uh, the great traditions of, of man, uh, and even to our competitors in the, the market of religions today. These schools have a, have a part of the truth. Part of what they say is not true, and we, we need to point that out, because my philosophy of religion is, is what I call the film, film at school, and part of that is not just to say everything's good and, and hunky-dory in the world, because that would be just blind. Right. Uh, the, there's also a, a what I call dialectic aspect to our approach to world religions. I say there's, there's truth here. There's also falsehood, but there's also a fulfillment of truth where it becomes more true than it was before in its, in, in its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, every school is partly right and partly wrong, but that truth is often not only brought together and you know consolidated in the person of Jesus Christ, it's also made truer the latent seeds of truth are, they sprout and they grow and they blossom in the gospel. Uh, and that is a powerful, and, and I give many examples of this in the book, this is a powerful uh, piece of evidence for the gospel. Uh, because a, an argument, a, a theory, it, part of its power, its force, lies in explanatory value. So my argument is that the gospel has great explanatory value and predictive value. Uh, and often it's just, it comes even to a supernatural sort of thing where you say, wow, right now I'm, I'm editing a book uh, by a uh, missionary to Japan who's been there for, many, for, for several decades. And he's writing a book about Chinese culture, Jap- Chinese-Japanese characters, and how some of them ha- seem to have latent images of the gospel in them. Um, it's really quite amazing when you get into the, the details. Uh, all the things within Chinese culture and tradition and Indian culture and tradition and even Norse culture and tradition, along with Greek culture and tradition, and of course the Old Testament and the suffering servant in Isaiah and different things like that, uh, how so much of the greatest that people have, the greatest things that great thinkers have said down through the millennia uh, is 
encapsulated and perfected in the life of Jesus Christ. I'd like to remind everyone right now that you are listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, seeking to bring you the best in scholarship and apologetics. I'm Nick Peters, your host. Right now, we're talking with David Marshall about his book, How Jesus Passes the Outsider Test. But if you're listening next week, and now if you're here in the West and you've seen a lot of things going on about how people are becoming more and more hostile to Christianity over here, and we're especially watching the Supreme Court decision to see what's going to happen. What, what's going on with this movement? Well, I'll, my guest next week co-wrote a book. He's a sociologist. His name is George Yancey. He co-wrote a book looking into this called So Many Christians, So Few Lions. And he, he's looking at what he calls Christian phobia in the United States and how this is becoming a growing trend that people are, are so opposed to Christianity and we're going to be talking about his research and his findings next week. But for now, we're going to get back to our discussion with David Marshall on how Jesus passes the outsider test. Now, when you're talking about these fulfillments, one of the favorite ones I like to hear you talk about is Confucius, who was a great sage of his time. And I, I have read the Analects, and yeah, I do encourage people... Try and read books of other holy religions. You can get a lot out of it. You can get a lot reading the wisdom of other people and other cultures. But Confucius, he made an interesting prophecy, didn't he? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure which one you're referring to, but he believed in what he called a shungren, which is a sage. Yeah. And um, his... The, the, the idea of the Shungran, the sage, goes back to ancient China, even before the time of Confucius. It's in the, uh, it's in the ancient the Sushu Wujing, the, the, the Chinese classics, uh, and particularly two books that Confucius tended to cite himself, which was his own, his own Old Testament, mm. were the, um, the Book of Poetry and the Book of History. And they often speak of a sage. The thing about the sage in the Old... In the, uh, it's kind of like the Jewish thing with the Messiah. They believed that the sage was kind of a king ruler sort of person. Right. And what really boggled the mind of the ancient Chinese was when, especially the followers of Confucius, was Confucius never had a royal position. He was never a king. Um, and he should have been a king by all rights. He should have been the ruler of the world because he was obviously the best person, on, on the most capable person on the job, according to Confucianists. Um, the Taoists didn't think so. They, they thought he was a bit of a joke. But uh, Confucius' greatest disciple was named Mencius. And Mencius also talked about the sage, and he said, hey, Confucius is the greatest sage we've seen so far, even though he wasn't a king. Uh, and then at the very end of the Mencius, it says something very interesting, that every 500 years there's going to be a great sage, mm -hmm. and which looks forward 500 years from Confucius to a great sage who would appear, which would be about, let's see, about about 0 AD actually and there's there's one scholar who actually counts the time from Confucius's uh, I don't know if it's from his death until when Jesus begins his ministry and says it's actually exactly 500 years from mm. that time time one Chinese scholar argues that I, I wouldn't necessarily I haven't looked into that so much so that I could confirm that but it's it should it's pretty close mm-hmm so yeah that's really interesting and then and the, the there's also a Buddhist Sutra, the, the Diamond Sutra, which also says the same thing. 
It says that after 500 years, there's going to be the consummation of the Buddhas. Buddhas is going to come 500 years after Buddha, which also turns out to be about 0 AD. Yeah. Now, you also talk about being in, I think it was, a temper and seeing symbols of the gospel all around you. What were you talking about? Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. Um, that was the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. Mm-hmm. And as I said, this is a, the most important building in all of China in some ways, in a spiritual sense. This is the place where the emperor would come once a year and he would sacrifice to Huang Tian Shang Di. Mm-hmm. Now the term Shang Di and the term Tian both go back to ancient China. Shang Di was the term for the supreme ruler of the universe. And the thing about, the, about Shangdi was not only was there nobody above him, not only was there nobody in his same class, but he was the only deity, the only being that was greater than the emperor. The emperor would go to other shrines to, you know, sacrifice or give some sort of, you know, uh, some sort of a sacrifice or something to the, some other deities, but they would not be really, they would be under his... Uh, authority, in a sense. But there was one being who was above the emperor, and that was Shangdi. It actually means above the emperor. The, the, the term actually means the ruler above. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and you look at the classics, when I've gone through them meticulously, I've looked through every every passage in the book of history and the book of poetry that talk about Di or Shangdi, and, and very quote, carefully checked it. Um, it was God. Um, the greatest scholar of ancient Chinese to this day. Actually, if you go around China right now and you look on billboard on the signs, you know, construction sites, because China is one big construction site. Mm-hmm. Skyscrapers going up everywhere. And you look on the walls uh, that fence off the construction site from the road, they'll have these 12 socialist values, um, including democracy and freedom, ironically enough. Mm-hmm. And next to them, they'll have some quotations by Confucius, the purpose of the quotes by Confucius, I guess, is to drive in, you know, if, if you want to preach socialism, then who better to preach socialism than Confucius, right? Mm-hmm. Who was a founder of, of, of the uh, supply-side economics. That's another story. Okay. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being ironic here. Confucius was not a Confucius, was not a socialist by any mm-hmm. chance. Okay. Anyway, you have these quotes by Confucius all over China now, everywhere. It's the, the main propaganda, it's the main uh, propaganda campaign over the last year or so in China. And underneath this quote by Confucius in Chinese, there's a translation into English by a person by the name of James Legg. James mm-hmm. Legg, to this day, 150 years later, he's considered, and he is, the greatest translator of the Chinese classics ever. He knew Chinese better than almost any Chinese. Not, not to say better than any foreigner, almost better than any Chinese. And he translated the ancient Chinese classics meticulously. Now, he was originally, I believe, a Presbyterian minister, a missionary, I preached in his church where, he, where they founded in Hong Kong. Uh, James Legg tr- translated the ancient Chinese classics for 30 or 40 years, mm-hmm. working on them every day. Get up very early in the morning, go to bed at night, pretty late I believe too, meticulously work on the ancient Chinese classics. He's a very fair and capable scholar and he concluded that Shangdi is, I believe, to the, to the Chinese exactly what God was to our fathers. Mm-hmm. His judgment is sound and correct. So, Shangdi, 
that they worship in, and I maybe mean, we could argue about that. There's some details that some people would, would dispute about that. But the Shangdi that was worshipped in the Temple of Heaven, which is the greatest, you know, really the most important tourist site in China, in, in Beijing, um, the emperor would come once a year and sacrifice to this supreme god. And another word for him was Tian, which is the word that Confucius used for the supreme god, because yeah. the terms have changed a little bit over time. Mm-hmm. So his full name was Huang Tian Shangdi, the august ruler above, uh, heavenly ruler above. And the emperor would come once a year and sacrifice to the supreme god, mm-hmm. and he would pray for all the people, and he would sacrifice certain animals. So there right away you have something kind of familiar. When I first went there in 1984, uh, one person, once a year, sacrificing for all the people. Just like in ancient Israel, one person, the high priest, came once a year to the Holy of Holies and sacrificed animals for all the people, some of the same animals. And then I looked around the building inside, and I noticed that some of the symbolism. Uh, for example, in the center of the Temple of Heaven, there are four red and gold pillars. Around the periphery of the twelve, the four pillars, there are twelve more pillars. According to the Chinese, these symbolize, first of all, the four seasons, and secondly, the twelve months of the year. But in ancient Israel, you also have the same symbolism, in which you have twelve tribes who were arranged in, on four sides of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, the 12 tribes were also represented by 12 pillars that were sprinkled with blood in the Old Testament. And what happens if you, get, if you sprinkle pillars with blood? You get red pillars, and the, t- the pillars in the, in the Temple of Heaven are, in fact, red. The central pillars, the four central pillars, are gold and red, which could symbolize the four Gospels, because Jesus also had four, 12 disciples, and there are four Gospels telling you about, uh, about, about Jesus' life, mm-hmm. which are often read in, read in gold in some Bibles. Now, I know this is a little bit subjective, maybe a little coincidental, but the, the message that seemed to drive home to me when I went there in 1984 as a young man was, you know, as I, as I, as I said before, God was there already, and here is the symbolism of the Gospel. In order to stand in the presence of God, you need to be covered with the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, that that is certainly something interesting to think about there. Um, since we're this, this, this is central, you know, the mm-hmm. central monument in Chinese civilization. Mm-hmm. We're we're in the second hour of our show, and we do need to move to the next part, and that's kind of the impact that Christianity has had, and let's talk about one of the interesting gifts that Christianity brought to the world that I'm sure is going to blow the mind of many skeptics out there, and that would be the gift of science. Right? Yeah, uh, and, uh, you know, it's indisputable that the early Christian, the early scientists in, in medieval Europe were atypically pious. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rodney Stark shows this in For the Glory of God that most of us assumed that in the Middle Ages most people were very, very pious and, and it was the age of faith, so-called. But it really wasn't. I mean, there were there was lots of... Uh, there weren't really that many people who were really serious in their Christian faith in the Middle Ages. There were, a lot of people had kind of a, a 
you know, Christo-pagan sort of sort of approach. But there weren't any people who really knew the Gospels and really there were not not many people who even went to church in the Middle Ages in, in, in medieval Europe, surprisingly. And St Stark shows this in, in an article called Sec uh, Re "Secularization: Rest in Peace." Uh, but in for the glory of God, what he does is he surveys the ancient, the, not the medieval scientists, the leading medieval scientists, and he finds that about 60% of them were especially devout Christians, the early scientists, the greatest scientists for two or three hundred years. Um, and then another percentage of them were just conventional believers, and then there were like two of them who were uh, skeptical in some way. So yes, the founders of modern science were Christians, and then a friend of mine, um, Alan Chapman, uh, who is a historian of science at, at Oxford University, who actually teaches at the very college where the Royal Society came together under John Wilkins. Mm -hmm. He shows that uh, Christianity really had a big impact. It wasn't just a, an accidental sort of thing that the early scientists were Christians, and Stark shows this too. There, there are reasons, there are connections between Christian theology and the founding of science. Now, skeptics like Carrier and a lot of people who follow him now would say, "Hey, hey, hey, wait a minute now! It wasn't the early, it wasn't the medieval Christians who founded modern science. In fact, modern science science was founded long, long before the medieval period. It was the ancient Greeks who founded science, and really, what they founded was very, uh, very much modern science. Is science in the full sense of the word? The funny thing is." If you look at what Carrier actually says in his, he's quoted quite a bit by skeptics on this subject because he, this is actually is an area where he is an expert. He actually is an historian of ancient science. You know, he, he, if you've heard of Richard Carrier, you know that he claims a lot of uh, expertise in a lot of fields. This is his actual area of expertise. Mm -hmm. And if you read his comments and his arguments, you find that he says, "Hey, how can you?" claim that Christianity was the source of modern science when, when science was going pretty well a long time before Christianity came along. In fact, a lot of these people founded science because they believed in God and because they believed that there must be a, a, a single force behind the universe that unifies the universe, and that's actually how they started to think about creating modern science, creating science. And he actually thinks of an argument against Christianity. I'm amazed. I mean, when you started saying that, I was just thinking, um, Dr. Marshall, did you get the argument wrong here? Because it sounds like you're you're making Carrier sound like he's defending Christianity here. I mean, you said that's actually what Carrier says. I'm just thinking, <laughs> wait, wait, he he's no, actually no. saying that. Yes, and almost, and this is why I love reading atheists. I mean, they always have these wonderful insights that cut their own throat, that that, that destroy their own position. Mm -hmm. Yes, he actually says that. And and then he tries to pretend that Christianity was the cause of the downfall of, of, of ancient science. But actually, if you read carefully, he admits that science had pretty much was pretty much on the on the on uh, what do you call them the, on the ropes yeah. uh, hundreds of years before Christianity actually became the uh, guiding uh, philosophy of the Roman Empire to the extent that it ever did. Um, yeah, he admits that too. Then people try to say that, hey, Christianity killed ancient science, like Carl Sagan tried to do this too. But it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work historically unless they had a time machine and they went back in time and they uh, undermined science before they actually gained power somehow. Um, anyway, Roman science wasn't what Greek science was. 
The real genius was in ancient Greece. Now, Chapman would say, and I think I agree with him, that one of the purposes, one of the causes of that was not only Christianity. I'm, we're not, I'm not claiming that Christianity was the single cause of science. I'm not claiming that it's a sufficient cause of science. You can have societies that are Christian in some sense without creating science, right. and you can, have, you can have societies that are scientific without being Christian. I'm not, so I'm not making that claim, which sometimes atheists would, would, would reply to. But one thing that Chapman says is, one of the strengths of ancient Greek society was its unity within disunity. And I think there's a very interesting e pluribus unum, as we, put it, as we say in modern America. There are five great, especially ingenious periods of human history, which I don't think anybody's written about this. Sometimes I'd almost like to write a book about this which combined these three things. First of all, they were disunited, fragmented politically. Secondly, culturally they were united. And thirdly, they were theistic. Mm -hmm. One of them was, the, uh, was ancient China at the time of the Zhou, the late Zhou, which had this strong idea of God, not just Confucius, also Lao Tzu, which I argue, I'm arguing in, in the new version of my China book. Um, Zhuangzi, the second founder of the Laozhuang school, or Taoism as we call it, mm. um, and Mozi, they had this strong idea of God. They had a cultural unity, overarching unity, but disparate nation states. You get the same thing in ancient Israel with the tribes of Israel. You get the same thing in ancient Greece. You get the same thing in medieval Europe, and you get the same thing in modern America. These are the five most ingenious civilizations in human history and the, thing, the societies that have given most to the world. So I think this concept of e pluribus unum is, is I think, uh, is a good one because we need critics. We need, it's health, healthy to have different schools of thought that can critique our ideas and that we don't just gain one you know, power over everybody else. It's healthy to have different schools of thought and it's healthy also to have unity but also a certain amount of disunity with God as being the, you know, the overarching concept that really inspires a lot of uh, creative thinking. Now, I'd like to remind everyone at this point that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported. And so, yes, there does come a time on the show where I do have to talk about donations, because, folks, we need them. And, I mean, if you like the show, if you like the content, if you like the guests that I'm getting on here, I don't get paid a penny to get my guests on here, and I don't pay I don't pay them anything. Come on, they come of their own free time to provide a service for you. Now, if you're interested in supporting this ministry, please go to our website deeperwaters.ddns.net, and you'll find there's a thing on the left there that says uh, about how to help support Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link, and it takes you to Risen Jesus Ministries. You've gone to the right place. Mike and Debbie Lacona are my father and mother-in-law. And you make a donation there through them. It's tax deductible. And you then email me or you email Debbie and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure that the donation does go to us. Now, some other ways you can donate. We have an Amazon store where you can buy some books that we talk about on the show and when you buy those books there we get a small portion of what you use to buy the books and of course I've got some of my own ebooks 
such as my Creed for the Ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed, and ones I've co-written with J.P. Holding, such as Defining Inerrancy and Groundless, which is a look at the atheism of Dan Barker. And we're also working on a page here, and if you want to know more about this and the page isn't up yet, contact me and let me know, but you want to buy some jewelry for someone special in your life? Hint to any of you guys out there who are thinking of popping the question soon. And I have a friend who works with Premier Jewelry, and she's working with us. If you buy jewelry through her, 25% of what you buy will go to support Deeper Water. So you want to go and buy that engagement ring for that lady and have a very special wedding coming up, why not do it through Deeper Waters, and that way you can make a donation. Now, Dr. Marshall, do you have a ministry or cause you'd like people to donate or support? Well, of course, I recommend people buy buy my books. Um, I think uh, the new one is called How Jesus Passes the Outside, Outsider Test, The Inside Story. Yep. And uh, Jesus and the Religions of Man is kind of the the, the most... Uh, gives kind of some of the background ideas uh-huh. to how any relates to other religions. Yep. And the other book that's really especially relevant would be uh, True Son of Heaven, How Jesus Fulfills the Chinese Culture. Mm-hmm. And then there's my uh, New Atheism book, too, which is pretty relevant, too. Yep. And all these books can be found on Amazon, right? Yeah, they can be found on Amazon. Uh, one other book I should probably mention is uh, uh, Faith Seeking Understanding, which mm-hmm. is... Mythology with people involving people like Alvin Plantinga and mm-hmm. Rodney Stark, and uh, uh, I think a lot of readers will probably enjoy that one too. And mm-hmm. contributions from Don Richardson and Philip Yancey and all mm-hmm. kinds of different. Now, when you were talking about the rise of science here, I've heard I think it's in a book called Jesus in Beijing that the Chinese government did some looking into why their culture didn't grow scientifically the way the West did, what made the West so different, and they concluded Christianity. Is that right? Um, well, I, I not only read the book, I actually reviewed it for Christianity Today. Um, I, I can't confirm that particular anecdote, although it's certainly, if you're talking about the general question, did why did Christianity not, why did uh, science not get going in, um, in, in China? What was the answer again? It was Christianity. Oh, that Christianity caused the... Yeah, um, I would certainly agree with that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, the person who's usually quoted when it comes to Chinese science is, is Joseph Needham, who was, I believe, a Marxist himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he makes that point, and a lot of people quote him on that. Uh, again, this is kind of a combination of factors. I think one of the reasons was because the original belief in God was very strong in ancient China, but from the Song Dynasty on, the rise of Neo-Confucianism kind of watered that down and turned it into kind of a pantheistic concept of God, which is what people sometimes still believe is the Chinese ver- belief now. Um, and even though the Song Dynasty itself was very inventive and creative, they had a lot of inventions. So one thing was kind of watered, watered down concept of God. The other thing was maybe too much political unity. Uh, when, for example, the Admiral Zheng He, who was a Muslim, took this, this vast fleet of ships to Africa, a very famous uh, event in the early Ming Dynasty. Uh, this is before Christopher Columbus by several decades. But his ships were vastly larger than Columbus's ships. 
and they went all the way from China to Sri Lanka. They fought a war with in Sri Lanka, and they went to Africa, and they brought back a giraffe, maybe a couple of giraffes and other animals, all the way back to China. Um, and the giraffe was considered to be a kili, a genie, which is kind of a mystical animal which symbolized good luck for the emperor, for the empire. So they thought this is a symbol of the Ming Dynasty's potential and future success. Great. So here we have these great ocean-going ships, huge ships, all the way to Africa. Uh, and this is also one of the, you know, the things that the Chinese government today prides itself on is its investment in Africa. Um, what happened? Why didn't China conquer the world? Why didn't China go to the, the, the Americas and discover the Americas? And uh, why was it discovered by these little little ships? Christopher Columbus and three little ships from from, uh, from was it Portugal? Um, you know, a little enclave on the Iberian Peninsula that had apparently no significance. It's be, part of the one of the reasons I think was because China was a top-down society. After a few years. The ships came back to China, and the emperor said, hey, I don't think we need this anymore. We're going to stop this program. The program was stopped because it was a top-down, you know, official program. Once it was stopped, and once the emperor said, hey, we don't need to deal with the rest of the world anymore, we're, we're enough on our own, um, the Chinese civilization wasn't able to do it because nobody else had the freedom uh, to just do what they wanted to do. But Europe was disunited. It had lots of city-states. And so you have this tiny little kingdom of Portugal developing uh, sea-going uh, sea technology, sailing around the Cape of Good Hope, sailing down the African coast, because Europe was disunited and it was competing with the Muslim civilization. Uh, it was actually turned out to be a positive thing, not a negative thing. Mm -hmm. That's the other big reason why I think chi Chinese science did not develop from very auspicious uh, potential. So I'd say, yeah. One thing is it lost its... its it's solid found a belief in a, in a creator God, a, a God who was behind the universe. And the other thing was it's, it's political unity at times. Uh, they didn't really have enough disunity to create, to begin creating. Yeah. Uh, the other important aspect we have to talk about what Christianity did is the transformation it brings to the cultures that it comes to. Now, one of my favorite parts in the book here because of the humor that you have in here is you talk about the sex market in Thailand and about how the Japanese and Westerners they they really didn't complain too much when the sex market showed up because in your words and why not? Whatever fever instinct we might have towards universal compassion, the male instinct for getting laid, our selfish genes my prowl, is visceral. Okay, I really, really laughed at that one. Said, "Oh, Allie, when I was reading that, Allie, you have to hear what Dr. Marshall said here. This is hysterical." <laughs> but yeah, they unfortunately over in Thailand, young girls are kidnapped and sold into sex slavery regularly, or they were. Well, I actually, I was there earlier this year, and I visited a, a youth of the mission ministry in Pattaya, mm -hmm. uh, and. Uh, what, what happens even today, and I'm, I was really disappointed to see how little progress has been made in this, because it seems to be ingrained in the Thai culture now. Uh, they, the girls come down to Pattaya and other parts of, of Thailand, of course, it's, it's, th it's throughout the country, uh, from poorer parts of Thailand, and they need, they're kind of forced into it by their, by their family because they need to make some more money, and so they work in the bars and they go home with the guys, 
uh, and they get a certain amount of the money. This is the best way, they, the fastest way they can make money. Mm-hmm. And uh, their family, you know, if they don't want to do it, their family's still pushing them into do it, doing it. So it's very hard for them to get out of it. Uh, yeah, it's 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 still there. I don't know if it's quite as. You know, the, the funny thing is, it's not really funny. Um, Thailand, in the 30 years since I first went there, it doesn't seem like it's progressed that much economically. I mean, it has to a certain extent, but not like China. Right. And this sort of abuse uh, of, of women is is still going on there, and, and uh, it's it's really uh, sad sad to see what's going on there. But it's also, you know, when I first went there, one of the things I came, I realized when I came here uh, 30 years ago was that uh, it is basically Christians who are fighting against this sort of thing more than anybody else. And my own experience of that was in Thailand, first of all, <clears throat> when we went around. Uh, with a guy named uh, Art, Art Sanborn. He, he had been in Thailand for a while already, and he knew the ropes. He knew where we were supposed to go. And he went, we went around to these villages, and he told us stories. He told us stories about, you know, how girls were being forced into prostitution and, and, and the drug, drug trade and the, the, the opium wars between the, uh, the different factions and whatnot, the tribes. And he told us a story. Well, we came into this one village, which I think was Lisu or Lahu, tribal village. Everybody was dressed, the girls were dressed in these beautiful, colorful outfits. I still have pictures that I took that day when I came into town. The year before, he had brought a team into that village to present the gospel. And they'd spent the night there. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the, they stayed the night. The men stayed in one hut, and the girls, the women stayed in another hut. And then the people in the village said, guys, you want a girl tonight? You know, really, really cheap. They're willing to sell their own daughters to these strangers for a very small price. And when I came there a year later, you know, Richard Dawkins talks about this patriarchal, uh, misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal maniac, Yahweh God in the Old Testament, and how evil God was. When I had been in Hong Kong, when I first went to Hong Kong and was being trained there, I've been reading through the book of Isaiah, and the book of Isaiah, again and again, I underline passages about how God had compassion on tribal peoples, on the mountain peoples, on, and then he actually talked about people being, these people being locked away and hidden, and, and would nobody come and rescue them. All these passages, what I was hearing about Thailand and hearing about Southeast Asia, it really seemed to go together somehow, the tribal peoples in the mountains, and the people being locked away, and nobody to rescue them. These girls were like that. There was nobody standing on their side. So when we came into this village and we did a gospel presentation, um, I was not very good at drama, so I didn't do part of the drama, which is what the way they were presenting the gospel in front of this bamboo hut. I went behind the bamboo hut, and I was my job was to pray. And I was apparently, instinctively, the leader of our group recognized that I was no good at drama, so he had me do the praying part. Hmm. And I went behind the hut, and while I was praying, and I didn't have this sort of experience very often, but I started to cry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these girls, 13, 14 years old, being sold by their own parents to have sex with strangers. Yeah. This is before AIDS, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, Sam Harris thinks it's just natural that people would oppose slavery because that's a humane thing to do. That's because he comes at the very end train of, of the gospel teaching of the prophets 
and, yeah. the, and the greatest Jesus Christ because he's been influenced for so many centuries but it is not natural for men to think young women are objects of compassion rather they're as you just said yeah. selfish genes wanting to get laid so and this is the way most people reacted when they saw these most men seemed to react when they saw these girls yeah alright this is so cool so so cheap Mm-hmm. So pretty. Yeah. But God, not me, I didn't have any particular connection with these girls. Different tribe, different different genes, you know, nothing to do with me. But while I was praying, influenced by the prophets, God laid his heart on me and showed me, hey, this is a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. And I started to cry. And I started to sit and I saw that. Yes, as if God was showing me this village was the world, a world, a different world. And just as God sent his son into the world to give his life for the world, in the same way he was calling his children to give their lives in order to save this little world, this little group of people, that God was calling people to do that. I think that's true of all of us, that God is calling each one of us into some little world to give our lives in some ways and following Jesus Christ to take up our cross and give our lives for the people around us in some way. It does strike me as incredibly naive to think that people would naturally oppose something like this because even speaking as a devout Christian man, I was even telling my own wife, Allie, yesterday, I said, when it comes to sexual issues and such, for most of us, rationality goes right out the window when that comes up because all of a sudden our, our minds are thinking somewhere else and I said and hun that includes me as well and rationally I have to train myself to do what is not natural to me in order to be a faithful and a loving husband and it seems like so many people like when you atheists and such look at these kinds of things and think well, this is just this just makes so much sense to I me. Mean, of course, people are going like this. And as I said, when I was debating on unbelievable one time, I said the reason people think this way is because they have a background of Christianity that's been influencing for a long time, so long they don't even know that it's suffused through their entire culture and they're getting their moral systems. On it. You take that away, you get something like Thailand. Yeah, um, and. Of course, the Philippines, which is supposed to be a Christian country, too, has the same problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing is, and this is one of the things that really is counterintuitive and that the whole world wants to disagree with this. Not only atheists, but the skeptical world will tell you that religion is harmful to women. Right. And when I was teaching in, in Japan, one of my students, I met my student in the, in the library, and she said, I asked her, well, what are you doing? She said, oh, I've got this article here. I'm writing an, a paper. What's it about? It's about religion and women. And we just invaded Afghanistan to liberate Afghanistan. And I asked, so are you writing about the Taliban? And she said, oh, yes. Because her notion of religion was Islam, Christianity, these kinds of religions that oppress women. And this is one of the reigning myths mm-hmm. of modern skepticism, is that Christianity oppresses women. So I asked this girl, what about Japan? When were women first educated in Japan? Uh, hmm, hmm. Was that uh, after World War II, she says? No, no, no. Go across town. One of the famous schools in, 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 in Nagasaki was Kase. Literally means horseshoe, living water. 
now it's kind of preppy, upper class sort of school. Living Water College was founded by, uh, by a missionary woman. Uh, I read her biography. She came to Nagasaki, even though I can't remember her name at the moment. She came to Nagasaki and she founded the school and she was very much proactive in, in raising the status of women, as were most of the mission, many of the missionaries in Japan. At the time, there, were no, there was no education for women. It was missionaries who introduced education for women. These, this is the Christianity you're talking about. This is not just in Japan, it's throughout the world. As I argue on my website, in christadow.blogspot.com, I have a whole series there called How Jesus Liberates Women. And I'm going to make this into a book someday, too. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it right now. Actually, this is part of my research reason for going to Thailand is to do some of the research for this book. Um, nothing has transformed the lives and status of women around the world as profoundly, as deeply, as richly as has the life, teachings, and example of Jesus Christ. That's my thesis. Mm -hmm. And there's a bunch of evidence to back it up. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how do you think the gospel has changed the lives of women and why has it done so? I mean, what is it about Christianity that says, hey, let's build up women? Well, why is it done so? It's, bec it's because Jesus did it. Right. Uh, there was nobody else in the ancient world who had the compassion, but it wasn't a, a blind compassion or a sentimental compassion like, you know, Charles Dickens, some of Charles Dickens' novels. Mm -hmm. Well, I just read Tales Two Cities, and he has two main female characters there. One of them is a... Uh, a cruel uh, French revolutionary, and the other one is, is this very over-sentimentalized sentimentalized, um, daughter of the uh, of Manet, the uh, the doctor, and becomes the wife of the the, the person who is almost put to the, the guillotine. Um, Jesus is not sentimental. Jesus speaks directly and frankly, and tells women to repent as well. Uh, but he speaks to women. And he speaks respectfully to women in a way that is tr revolutionary. In fact, uh, Walter Wink, a, a New Testament scholar, says that since the rise of patriarchy, there was no one who treated women in the ancient world like Jesus did. In every single instance where he meets a woman in the, in the Gospels, he treats them outside of the bounds of the normal way of thinking of those days, the normal cultural expectations. Mm -hmm. The woman at the well, um, Mary Man Magdalene, um, the, the woman who comes and, and cries at his feet and washes his, washes his feet with her hair, scandalizing everybody present, except for Jesus. Jesus is not scandalized. Martha and Mary, I mean, that's a powerful example. Yeah. Um, Jesus comes to their house, and, and Mary, Martha says, hey, you know, we really need to get kitchen uh, food on the table. The disciples are all here. And what is Mary doing? She's wasting her time talking theology with the men. Doesn't she know that theology is for women, for men, not for women? Women should be in the kitchen preparing barefoot meals. and pregnant. Yeah, yeah, barefoot and pregnant. Jesus, can you please tell my sister to come in and give me a hand? And Jesus says, Yeah, you're right. You know, we're, I'm getting really hungry. My stomach's starting to growl. Mary, can you please get in the kitchen? Get away from me. We're talking men stuff here anyway. That's what he says. Right, 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 no, right. no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, he says, no, Martha, let me tell you something. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken from her. And what is he saying right there? He's saying, I want women educated too. Mm -hmm. 
where, the, where my followers go and preach the gospel, as I'm going to tell you at the end of the book, by the way, mm-hmm. where my preachers go and make disciples of all nations, I want them to found schools for women. I want India, where women have, you know, been burnt on the, on the pyre as, as, as when their husbands die, according to the law of Manu, as the law of Manu teaches, uh, that women should not really live after their husbands because they should, you know, and they certainly should not marry again because if, if they do that, they'll enter into the, the womb of a jackal and be born as jackals in their next lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I want women to be educated. And so when the first schools appear in India, uh, as well as the reforms that led to the abolition of a sati, a widow burning, it was missionaries who did it. Right. In China, uh, when you find, do a survey in Fujian province of hundred and something women, even in the middle of the 20th century, who had been educated, uh, given higher education, only two of them cannot be shown to have had an education by from missions. Um, throughout the world. I mean, not every civilization was equally uh, misogynistic. Some of them were better than others. Some of them were worse than others. But overall, throughout the world, there's been no person and there's been no social movement that has had the impact of Jesus Christ on on the world, and particularly in raising the status of women, helping billions of women. Uh, And this is an amazing, this is just one of, of several very amazing ways in which the gospel has transformed the world for the better. As God had promised to Abraham thousands of years before. One of the things I'm thinking about is, I remember it's called the Epistle to Diognetius or the Epistle of Diognetius, but it's an early Christian writing, and we don't really know who wrote it, but one of the things he points to is, look at how differently the Christians live in comparison to everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and of course this doesn't say, I mean, when we define religion, we can think of it in three ways. Mm-hmm. First of all, the founder, his teachings, and his personality, and secondly, the sacred scriptures, the canon, and thirdly, the developed tradition. Now, if we define religion by the developed tradition, then, of course, Christianity has had its good times and its bad times, it's had its saints, its sinners, its good, bad, and its ugly. Mm-hmm. But if yeah. we focus especially on Jesus Christ and the original teachings of Jesus and his followers as developed in the canon of the New Testament, mm-hmm. then, you know, that's a pretty powerful witness. Human of course, we have to look at human history, too. We have to look at how the gospel has impacted the world. Look at the good and the bad. To be fair, we have to yeah. look at both. I am thinking, though, about how Augustine did say, you never judge a philosophy by its misuse. And wherever Christianity has been misused, and you and I would be some of the first ones to stand up and say, hey, yeah, this is wrong. This isn't what Christians are supposed to do. But whenever the teachings of Christ have been followed faithfully, we need to look and say, Okay, what kind of people does this produce when it's followed faithfully? Yeah, and, and you know, when I debated Phil Zuckerman, um, one of the first things I did when I, when I, in my opening statement was I said, you know, we're, we're asked, our question here is what kind of impact does Christianity or secular humanism have on society? And some of us who grew up in a Christian family, in a godly Christian family, with parents who really live the faith, you know, I, I, I got up in the morning and I see my dad and my mom reading the Bible and praying together every morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And they did that for many, many decades. Uh, and they lived it. They lived it out, and they showed me what it looked like. And I'm not as, nearly as good a Christian as they are, frankly. Um, but you can see the impact that 
that Bible and that prayer could have on people's lives right. if they faithfully follow it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, and that, that's the kind of thing that we've seen time and time again. And since you brought up Pharaoh Zuckerman, I think one thing we should point out is along these lines that one of the Zuckerman's main points has been, I think, to look at the culture in places like Sweden and such say, see, we've pretty much got a utopia here, and it's not because of Christianity, so there you go. Yeah, and that's another case that I that I say, um, it's, it's wonderful to have atheists around uh, because they so often, not only because they undermine their own arguments, but sometimes they make the best case for, for, the, for the faith. Right. And Phil Zuckerman's a wonderful example of that, because you actually read his book, uh, what's it called, Godless, um, the, his book about Scandinavia, He's he actually does some very good research, and then like Phil Zuckerman, he's an honest man, and he does good research, and I, I like his kind of research because it's not just a bunch of numbers, but it's faces and it's people, and he quotes what they actually say, and if you look at what he's, he quotes these people from um, Denmark and from Sweden, those are the two countries he does research in, just for a year, so he's not, he's an expert, but you know, there's a limit to his expertise too, mm -hmm. and what he does in those two countries is he asks atheists and secularists about their faith, their lack of faith, he asks everybody actually, lots of people, hundred and some people that he, that he interviews, and what's striking is that again and again they say things like, uh, you know, I may be a skeptic, maybe an atheist, but I'm a Christian, because this, these are the tr values, caring for other people, caring for the marginalized and the weak. My grandfather used to say, you know, you should uh, love your neighbor as yourself, or, or walk the extra mile, or, or you know, be a good Samaritan. And they'll say, this is, these are values that are deeply ingrained in my culture, in our culture here. And Zuckerman says, hey, you know, those are really secular humanist values. <laughs> those are secular humanist values. And you look at it and say, what? <laughs> it, it, they themselves recognize the source. Yep. And, and historically, if you read the Cambridge history of, of Scandinavia, or you read historical sources on Scandinavia, they're right. It was the gospel that turned these Vikings, you know, who are, as you were saying, looking to get laid and also to burn a few uh, monasteries and grab, grab a hoard of, of gold, you know, with their, their, their dragon prow on, on their ship. That's probably where, you know, the medieval people got the idea that the dragon liked to sit on gold because the Vikings, they were killing people. They were killing their own slave girls, sacrificing them when their chief died as an Arab historian points out in the 8th century and 9th century. Um, that's how the Vikings turned into these, you know, these fellows peddling their bicycles through Copenhagen to, to sell, sell flowers on the street. You know, this was the, there was a different progression here. It didn't come out of nowhere historically. And how in the world, why would atheists think that human culture is formed, you know, by a sudden act of creation, ex nihilo, you know, from nothing, uh, why would they think that there's no source to the values that sec so-called secular humanist societies propagate? Mm -hmm. There is a source, and the source of the, the reform in Scandinavia was, in fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Is the Zuckerman book the society without God that you're talking about? That's the one. Yeah. yeah. We haven't got <coughs> to see the latest season, but I do know my... My wife's been watching the Vikings show that comes on. I think it's a History Channel, and every time 
I'm usually sitting there watching this where I'm kind of half watching because I'm going through a book or something at the same time, but I am watching and seeing every single time that something with Christianity is coming up because I know if they're going to be historically accurate, eventually these guys are going to have to become Christians. Yeah, well, that would be a pretty, pretty traumatic event. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but they talk about the Vikings in this book quite a bit, actually, um, because... There's two texts that really show us what the Vikings were thinking before Christianity came mm-hmm. and what they thought after Christianity, how they connected the two. And I cite both of those texts quite a bit in this book. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it just really does show the transforming power going on of Christ when he comes to other cultures. And it, it, it's still going on today. I mean, as much as I don't always care for the personal testimony mode of evangelism, if you want to ask the average person on the street why do you believe in Jesus Christ and most likely point to some great change that's come in their life because they're following the teachings of Jesus yeah and, and there is a difference between becoming a Christian and following the teachings of Jesus um, uh-huh. I don't know what there shouldn't be a difference but uh, I don't think there are a lot of people whose lives aren't changed because they're not really following the teachings of Jesus very much uh-huh. and I think you know, if you look today in Africa, for example, um, this is one of the challenges, and America too, mm-hmm. this is one of the challenges, is to, to take, take people who wave, wave this banner of Christianity over their heads and get them to actually follow the teachings of Jesus and act like Jesus in some ways. That's, that's a big challenge for all of us. I mean, it's not yeah. just for them, it's for us. Yeah, we, we still all have to die to ourselves every day. You know, we have to hate ourselves every day. Yeah, yeah. And I think many of us can do what you did with your parents and look and see other Christians that we know and say, those Christians inspire me to be a better Christian. Yeah, yeah. And and even sometimes uh, we can learn from non-Christians in that way too because there's some people who are not Christians but in some, to some degree and in some sense they're trying to follow Jesus even indirectly at times. Yeah, when you talk about Islam, one thing that I was saying is is if we had the Muslim devotion to prayer, think how much better we'd be. Hmm. Now, unfortunately, we have reached a point where we do have to start wrapping things up. We've talked a lot, and let me tell you, folks, please get this book. This book really is excellent. You will really enjoy it. You will get a lot of it, and it will show you a whole lot about who Jesus is and what a difference he makes. I have to say, get the book. And it is available right now on Kindle for nine ninety nine, and on paperback for thirteen oh six from Amazon. Now, Dr. Marshall, if people want to find out more about you or, you know, what you're doing and things like that, uh, do you have a blog or website or anything where people can get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, I I do have a blog, which I've I have a lot of materials on the blog too, yeah. including on Jesus Liberates Women, and that's uh, Christ the Tao at blogspot.com. And, and you can just search Christ the Tao, T-A-O, yep. and it's easy to find. Yeah, and that that's actually... Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, I haven't been able to blog very much in China, but I do from time to time, and I you know get messages there, too, from people who are commenting and stuff. Now, that, that's actually in the Chinese culture. The Tao is a way of saying the way, isn't it? You know, the Tao, and this is a whole other subject, the Tao is actually a name for God. But oh. I can't prove that right now, but I can prove that, and I'm going to prove that in the new version of my China book. Okay. Well, is there any uh, final message you'd like to do today for the people of audience? Yeah. Um, we, we Christians, 
don't need to be intimidated by any of this stuff. Right. Because the more you learn about it, read what the evidence, what the our opponents say, what our critics say. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we can learn some things from what they say, and the more we learn, the more we come back to truth. The deeper our roots are planted in the truth, the stronger the gospel becomes. Mm hmm And how curious, is there anything you'd say to John Loftus if he heard this? Well, I'd probably say hi. Um, you know, we, we had a debate on on uh, unbelievable program for for a couple of episodes way back when, and the people who are interested in that they can they can hear hear what we say to say to each other. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I think John recognizes in a sense that uh, he's over his head when it comes to the subject, but his main focus recently has been on trying to show that the gospel has been harmful to, to human relation religions to the world, and. Uh, I'd love to talk to him more about that subject, along with some of his contributors. I'm actually thinking of asking Hector Avalos if he wants to try a debate on that subject. Mm -hmm. um, because before we talk to non-Christians about the truth of the gospel, we're all looking at it from the grid of our culture, and people are saying, yeah, but what good has it done us? Is this something that is a blessing to our culture or harmful to our culture? So I think as Christians, we need to make the case that the gospel has been a blessing to our culture. And then people are going to listen to the debate over the resurrection with different ears. They're going to be more willing to, to listen and accept the truth of the gospel when they realize that it's been you know, one of the great reforming movements in human history. And it's helped them personally. We are Dr. Marshall. It's been a fascinating interview on an excellent book. I'd like to thank you for coming on, and I hope we'll see you again here sometime. Well, it's good talking with you, Nick. Thanks now, for inviting me. Thanks for coming on. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week, George Yancey is going to be my guest. Talking about so many Christians, so few lines. Christianophobia in the West. For now, I am Nick Peters.